The Equitable Life Assurance Society presents This is Your FBI. This is your FBI, the official broadcast from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, presented transcribed as a public service by the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States and the Equitable Society's representative in your community. Appearing on this evening's program in the role of Inspector Young is George Murphy, star of the new Louis de Rochemont production, Walk East on Beacon, released by Columbia Pictures. This authentic motion picture made with the cooperation of your FBI, reveals the manner in which the FBI is carrying out its widespread offensive against espionage in the United States. There are many examples in history of people who have given up freedom in return for promises of future security. This is not the American way. We Americans prefer to secure our future and preserve our freedom at the same time. For this reason, more than five million Americans have joined the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States of our own free will. Throughout the nation, the Equitable Society is represented by 8,000 insurance specialists. In about 10 minutes, I'll tell you more about these men and how they may help you solve your problems and enjoy the advantages of membership in the Equitable Society. Tonight, the subject of our FBI file, Subversive Activities. Its title, The Courier. Later this month, the American people will observe one of their most solemn holidays, Memorial Day set aside for the purpose of honoring those who have died in the wars fought to perpetuate our freedom. This evening, your FBI unveils for your inspection the case history of an American communist, a man who may be responsible for the future deaths of countless of his fellow Americans if there should be a third world war. This man was a courier in the atomic spy ring, a citizen of our country who espoused a doctrine of hate and became a traitor. His life testified to the utter darkness of the communist way. And by examining that life, we see the tragic error of communism, a blight which saps the moral strength of a man and leaves him a helpless puppet. Tonight's FBI file opens on a January afternoon in 1944. The place is a busy street corner in downtown New York. I wasn't there. I found out about this part of the story years later. I'm Inspector Young, assigned to the Federal Bureau of Investigation's headquarters staff. I wasn't on that corner, but a short, chunky, bespectacled man was. He was carrying a book with a green leather binding. He was waiting for a man carrying a very strange object in his left hand an ink-stained tennis ball. After waiting a few minutes, the man with the tennis ball came along. Pardon me. Is that book from the library? Yes. I'm Dr. Panola. I'm Christopher. 
Let's walk. Tell your friend I may not be here long. But you just arrived. It's possible I'll be here a week, a month, or I may have to leave tonight. For where? Maybe Tennessee. Mm -hmm. What's so important down there? Our experiments. We're working on nuclear fission. Really? You understand? Not entirely, but I'm a chemist. I know what atomic energy would mean. You uh, better wait for the light. Yeah. How will I contact you in the future? On the first page of this book, you'll find a phone number. Call there and leave word with John that you want to see me. John is your superior? Yes. All right. I'll call as soon as I have something. With that meeting, the history of the world was affected. Dr. Panola was a member of a team of European scientists, and Christopher was the code name for an innocuous-looking chemist. But both had something in common besides an interest in science. Both were anxious to help in the foundation of a new world, a Soviet world. They met a half a dozen times during the next six months, always in a public place. Dr. Panola passed his papers to Christopher, who in turn kept an appointment with his superior, a man from an Iron Curtain consulate, a man named John. Pardon me, sir. Yes. You got a match? Here. Oh, thanks. Did you see him? Yes, he gave me some reports. Where are they? In a locker here at the station. He gave you the key? It's in your book of matches. Thanks for the light. Whether he was meeting John or Dr. Panola, Christopher observed one rule, caution. That was vital, for now the information Dr. Panola was relaying was becoming more and more important. Everything was going according to plan, and then one day... John, something's happened to the doctor. An accident? I can't find out. He didn't meet me this morning. I waited for two hours, and then I went to the alternate meeting place. He never came near either one. Go to his apartment. Oh, he's not there. The janitor says he left town, but he doesn't know for where. I thought he'd call you before he went anyplace. He should have. Well, what can we do now? His sister lives in this country. Oh, where? Up in New England. Her name's... Uh... Uh, Mrs. Kermit. I'll give you her address. Go see her. Just a minute. Good morning. I'd like to see Mrs. Kermit. I'm Mrs. Kermit. Well, I'm a friend of your brother... Dr. Panola. Oh, well, please come in. Thank you. My name is Mr. Christopher. Well, won't you sit down, Mr. Christopher? Thank you. Uh, do you live here in town? No, I just happen to be going through. I called the doctor yesterday and found he left New York. Yes, he's been transferred. Where to? Someplace out west. Uh-huh. Do you have his address? No, I don't, Mr. Christopher. <laughs> You know Eric. He always keeps everything about his work so secret. Yes. Isn't there any way you can get in touch with him? 
Well, he said he'd write, but I guess he just hasn't had time. Well, Mrs. Kermit, if I leave a message, will you get it to your brother when you do hear from him? Of course. Just tell him that Mr. Christopher was here. I'll write a phone number for you in New York. Have him call me. A week went by, two weeks, a month, and still no word from Dr. Panola. Then one day, in an office at the Communist-controlled consulate in New York... Hello? John? Yes. Dr. Panola. Where are you? In Santa Fe, New Mexico. I was transferred very suddenly to a new atomic center near here called Los Alamos. You should have called me. I didn't have time. Do you have any news? Yes, and it's very important. Get a leave of absence and bring it east. I can't. You'll have to meet me. Where? Here in Santa Fe. I'll send Christopher. All right. Tell him to come to Santa Fe a week from today. I'll meet him at four in the afternoon on the Castillo Street Bridge. Four weeks later, Christopher went by train to Albuquerque. From there, he took a bus to Santa Fe. And now he used the caution he had been taught. He went to a store and purchased a city map. That meant he wouldn't have to ask anyone for directions to the Castillo Street Bridge wouldn't have to speak to anyone who might later identify him. Using the map, he arrived at the bridge. He began to walk across. Where are you going? The bus station. Jump in. Oh, thanks. You have the details with you? It's all the latest ones. Wonderful. What's happened? Wait until I drop you. Why? If we're stopped, I'm entitled to have them on me. You're not. Tell John he won't hear from me again. Why not? I'm going back to Europe. My work here is done. When are you leaving? Any day now. There's nothing more to be transmitted. When these papers get to Moscow, they'll know as much about the bomb as we do. Return in just a moment to tonight's exciting case from the official files of your FBI. But right now, here's a message that may be of great interest to you. It's the experience of Mr. George Whitby, a member and policyholder of the Equitable Life Assurance Society. How long have you been a member, Mr. Whitby? Oh, four and a half years, Mr. Keating. Well, what was it that first interested you in becoming a policyholding member of the Equitable Society? It was a life insurance plan that I heard you talk about on this program, Mr. Keating. It interested my wife and me so much, we decided to find out more about it. So I looked up the name of our local Equitable Society agent. I gave him a ring, and he dropped around the next evening. He knew his business. He seemed genuinely concerned about our problem. He was more like a counselor than a salesman. I'd say that's a good description of Equitable Society men everywhere, all 8,000 of them. They help you get the kind of life insurance that will be most advantageous to you. They believe that the best insurance service is based on a friendly, mutual understanding between agent and client. Well, if they're all like our equitable agent, they're a mighty fine bunch of men to do business with. They really are. You see, equitable agents are specialists. They're trained men, professional men, 
who have chosen life insurance as a career, and they have the backing of a large group of home office specialists. All of them are at the service of every equitable member and prospective member. And that's a thought I'd like to leave with our listeners. Equitable society men are good men to do business with. So if you have a life insurance problem, if you're interested in the future security and the peace of mind of your family, consult the man who can help you most. Consult your local telephone directory for the name of your local equitable representative or write to the Equitable Society care of this station. That's E-Q-U-I-T-A-B-L-E. The Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States. And now back to the FBI file, The Courier. Long after that meeting in Santa Fe, we at the Federal Bureau of Investigation learned that the basic secrets of nuclear fission had been stolen. I am not at liberty to reveal how we obtained that information, for security and human lives are involved. However, I can tell you the information was conclusive. It proved beyond any question that the secrets of atomic bomb construction had been acquired by Russia. Now Mr. Hoover called a meeting and issued an order. Find the guilty man. To do the job, he mobilized every possible resource. The case was given top priority. Tom, we've gotten a break on the atomic investigation. What's that, Jim? Well, we developed some information about a scientist who was at Los Alamos back in 1945. His name is Dr. Panola. Is he still at Los Alamos? No, he's back in Europe, so Mr. Hoover sent our information to the authorities over there. They just cabled that Panola's made a full confession. Oh, good. Well, he claims he'll cooperate, but he's only mentioned two people he worked with over here. We have any records on them? Well, yes and no. Uh, first man was somebody named John, who worked at the New York consulate of a communist-controlled country. Where is he now? He's back in his own country. Oh. The other man Panola named was the courier who delivered his reports to this John. His name is Christopher. Is that his first or last name? Panola says that's all he ever called him. Has he given us any description? Yeah. Here's the cable with all the information. Mm-hmm. Study it, then we'll go to work. The information supplied by Dr. Panola was this. Christopher appeared to know chemistry and engineering. He was from 30 to 40 years of age, about 5 feet 8 inches tall. He didn't know where Christopher lived, but he thought he was still in the United States. That meant your FBI had the task of locating a man whose name they didn't know, whose complete description they didn't have, and who might be anywhere in the country. In all the history of the FBI, there never was a more important problem than this one. The unknown man had to be found. Of that, there was no question. But how? Where do you start on a manhunt where the wanted person can go almost any man in the United States? Your FBI had a list of the places where Dr. Panola had remembered contact being made. One of those places was the home of his sister. I made that my first stop. Mrs. Kermit? Yes? I'm Inspector Young of the FBI. Here are my credentials. Come in, please. 
Thank you. I suppose you're here about Eric. Uh, yes, I am. Then those stories in the papers, they're true. I'm afraid they are. Mr. Young, may I say something before you ask me any questions? Why, of course. I, I love my brother, and, and, and I'm not deserting him while he's in trouble. But neither my husband nor I ever suspected that he was a communist. Why, we didn't even know what he was doing in this country. Perhaps you still can help us. Your brother says a man named Christopher visited you here. What can you tell us about him? Well, let me see. Uh, can you give us a description of him? Well, he, he was kind of a stocky man. Not too tall. He, he had sort of brown hair and heavy face. And I think he was... a Well, I'd say he was about in his middle 30s. Did he speak with an accent? No, he didn't. Uh, how long was he here? About an hour. Mm -hmm. Did he tell you what he did for a living? I think he said something about chemistry. Was he married? I don't think he said anything about that one way or the other. Did he uh, mention any city besides New York? Yes, he did. He told me he came here by train from... Oh, oh yes, he said Philadelphia. That's about all I can remember about him. Well, if you think of anything else, I'd appreciate your calling me. Now the full resources of your FBI were put to work. Every tenant in the large New York apartment house where Dr. Panola had lived was questioned. Some were scattered to distant points on the map, but each was located. Did any of them furnish any information? No. Former employees and scientists at the two atomic centers where Dr. Panola had been stationed were interviewed. Did they know anything about a heavy-set chemist whose name might be Christopher? No. In Santa Fe, inquiries were made at bus, air travel, and railroad ticket offices. Hotel registers were analyzed, again with no results. A list of chemists was compiled from the city records of New York and Philadelphia. Of the tens of thousands who were possible suspects, 15% were immediately eliminated because they were women. Other thousands were removed from the list because of discrepancies in age, physical appearance. Gradually, the number was paired to 1,000, then 500, then 100, then one. Jim, there's a chemist in Philadelphia named Craig. He might be Christopher. No. Here's his description. Thanks. Age 37, brown hair, still stuck. Born Russia. Where'd you get his name? It was on the list of chemists, and it was in our files. We questioned him back in 1947. Oh, about what time? Well, he was described as a communist suspect by a chemical engineer in New York, a fellow named Grimes. Yeah, well, you spoken to this Grimes? He's dead. Uh, where's Craig now? working as a chemist for a hospital in Philadelphia. Uh -huh. Before that, he was with the Philadelphia Sugar Company. I've gone over their employment records, and Craig either reported sick or was on vacation on the dates Panola claims he met the courier. Uh, you interviewed Craig yet? No, that's where I'm going now. I'm 
looking for Mr. Craig. I'm Craig. You waiting for a test? No, I'm Inspector Young of the FBI. Here are my credentials. Mm-hmm. Well, what can I do for you, Mr. Young? When you find time, I'd, uh, I'd like to ask you a few questions. Why don't we do it now? Fine. By the way, what am I charged with? Oh, nothing yet. I knew I couldn't be. I haven't done anything. Ask me any questions you like. In questioning a suspect, it sometimes is a better course of action for a special agent to make his first few queries very general, covering vital statistics. Other times, an agent will uh, attempt to employ the element of surprise and make his first question the big one. I showed Craig a picture of Dr. Panola. Is this man familiar? Of course, that's Dr. Panola. You know him? Sure, everybody does after the publicity he got. Is that why you recognized his picture? Yes, I saw it often enough in the papers. Have you ever seen Dr. Panola in person? No, not that I know of. Why, was he in Philadelphia? I don't know. Tell me, Mr. Craig, where did you work before you got this job at the hospital? At a sugar company. How was your health in those days? Oh, not very good. As a matter of fact, that's why I took this job. I was ill quite a lot at the sugar company. When I took sick leave, they docked me for the days I missed. Did you go anywhere on those sick leaves? Oh, sometimes to New York to see a show. Usually I stayed home. Did you take any trips to New England? Never been there in my life. Did you take any vacations while you were at the sugar company? Two weeks each summer. Did you spend them taking trips? No, no, I'm one of those unusual people, I guess. I just never was bitten by the travel bug. I like it here. Well, I guess that would mean that you've never been out west, say, to New Mexico or California. I went to Pittsburgh last year to the chemist convention. That's as far west as I've ever gone. Mm-hmm. You know many chemists? Yes, of course. Did you happen to know a chemical engineer in New York named uh, Grimes? Grimes, yes. He died last year. Oh, did he? Well, at least that's what I heard. Uh, tell me, would you have any objections to my taking some pictures of you? Not at all. But why? Well, we'd like to use them in connection with an investigation. I see. You can refuse, of course, to grant permission. I have no objection. I, uh, I brought along a camera, but I'm, I'm afraid we don't have enough light in here. No, I don't. Can we go outside and take them now? Surely. At noon, I started to shoot pictures of Craig. By 2.30, the film was delivered to the FBI laboratory in Washington. They were developed immediately and put aboard a plane to Europe. The following day, at the prison where Dr. Panola was in custody, the pictures were shown to him. He leaned forward in his chair and studied the screen intently. Proof that the right man had been found could now be had if Dr. Panola identified Craig. The room was quiet except for the whir of the movie projector. All right, stop. That man is not Christopher. After Dr. Panola's discouraging words, we ran the film again, this time for the doctor's sister in New England. If she could make a definite identification, it would be almost as valuable as Dr. Panola's. She couldn't. In spite of this, we at FBI headquarters were still sure Craig was the man we wanted. I was in my office the following day when... Young. Hello, Mr. Young. This is Leonard Craig. Oh, hello. How are you? Pretty good, thanks. Say, I thought of something after you left. 
Oh, yeah? What was that? Maybe you'd like to look around my room. Oh, I can't. Why not? Well, in order to get a search warrant, I'd have to say what I expected to find in your room. You don't need a search warrant. Oh, I do, unless you're willing to give me your permission. Well, that's why I called. Will you put that permission in writing? Of course. Well, fine. When can we meet? Tonight. I'll be home around 6.30. I'll be there. That evening, Craig was again as polite and cooperative as possible. He suggested I start with a table beside his bed. That's where he kept a lot of his papers. Uh, if there's anything you don't understand, be glad to explain. Thank you. Maybe a few scraps of paper with chemical data. Maybe even I won't understand it now. Oh, uh, that's, uh, that's a chemical journal. Whenever an item of interest was found, Craig was ready to give an explanation. He was supremely confident. He seemed to have an answer for every question. We worked our way through each drawer of the table and then around the room to the bookcase. Mind if I look through your books? Not at all. Hey, there's something behind them. They're paperback mysteries. Oh. I hide them so my friends won't find out I'm not an intellectual. <laughs> I see. Wait a minute. Looks like there's something back of the bookcase. Uh-huh. You mind if I move it out? No, not at all. Yeah, that'll be enough. What did you find? A city map of Santa Fe. Oh? Maybe whoever had this room before me left it. You think the former tenant also marked the Castillo Street Bridge on the map? Well, uh... You said you'd never been west of Pittsburgh. Was that true? Mr. Craig, would you like to tell me the whole story? Tried in federal court, Leonard Craig was sentenced to a long term in a federal penitentiary. And now a word from the star of tonight's program, Mr. George Murphy. Ladies and gentlemen, I should like to take this opportunity to tell you about one of the most exciting things that has ever happened to me. Last fall, I had the privilege of working in a new motion picture called Walk East on Beacon, a picture adapted from FBI cases photographed and portrayed as it happened with the complete cooperation of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. This is an important picture for you to see because it shows exactly how the agents of a foreign government operate. It is an exciting picture and there is a realness and honesty about it that you won't forget. It's a picture that Americans, both old and young, should see. I would like to thank Mr. J. Edgar Hoover for selecting me to play the part of Inspector Bellin. It was one of the most exciting experiences of my life. And as for your FBI, ladies and gentlemen, in this troubled world, we should thank God every night for this wonderful group of men. The finest, most efficient, most self-sacrificing, best public servants in the world. As long as we have the FBI, we need not fear for the future of America. I think you will enjoy seeing how they protect you and your country in Walk East on Beacon. Thank you, Mr. Murphy. Now, 
If you are interested in planning for future security and peace of mind of yourself and your family, why not talk to the man in your community who can help you most? Your local Equitable Society representative will be glad to discuss your problems with you at any time and without any obligation. Throughout the United States, there are more than 8,000 of these insurance specialists. To get in touch with your local Equitable Society representative, simply consult your local telephone directory. The Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States. Next week, we will dramatize another case from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Its subject, impersonation. Its title, The Punch and Judy Shakedown. The incidents used in tonight's Equitable Life Assurance Society's broadcast are adapted from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. However, all names used are fictitious, and any similarity thereof to the names of places or persons, living or dead, is accidental. Tonight, George Murphy was starred as Inspector Young. The music was composed and conducted by Frederick Steiner. The author was Jerry D. Lewis. Your narrator was William Woodson, and Special Agent Taylor was played by Stacey Harris. Others in the cast were Whitfield Connor, Ted DeCorsia, Isabel Jewell, and Tom Tully. This is your FBI is a Jerry Devine production. This is Larry Keating speaking for the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States and the Equitable Society's representative in your community and inviting you to tune in again next week at this same time when the Equitable Life Assurance Society will bring you another thrilling transcribed story from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. The Punch and Judy Shakedown on This is Your FBI. Stay tuned for the adventures of Ozzie and Harriet. There's fun for the whole family when Ozzie and Harriet come your way next. This program came to you from Hollywood.